Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, uh, the invitation of Jesus. Uh, And so you can follow along as I read uh, the words of Jesus. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's uh, let's pray together, shall we, Lord? Thank you for um, a place that we can come uh, uh, to the sanctuary, uh, away from the uh, stresses and the um, cares of the world, and to come together and to uh, worship you, uh, to bring all our care, all our worry, all our anxiety to you. And Lord, thank you that we can learn from you this morning. Uh, your invitation is to learn from me. And so, Lord, we pray that as we uh, look at who you are uh, from our passage this morning, that we will uh, learn and model and uh, follow the example of Jesus. So open up our hearts to that truth today. And Lord, we uh, just thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Lord, continue to guide us, continue to direct us, and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you would like to follow along where we are in the Gospel of John, it's John chapter uh, 13, and uh, we're uh, progressing through the Gospel of John. And as I mentioned last week, the first uh, 11 or 12 chapters cover the, the first three years of Jesus' ministry. Uh, chapters like 12 through 21 cover the last week of Jesus' life and also uh, his post-resurrection appearances. So this morning we're going to look at a very familiar passage of Scripture from John chapter 13. The message is entitled, Humility Personified. And uh, so I'll begin with a question this morning. If I were to ask you the question, in, in your mind, in your evaluation, are you a humble person? If I were to ask you this morning, and I'm not going to ask you to do this, but if, if I were to say, raise your hand if you think you're humble. And some of us are thinking, well, wait a second. If I raise my hand and think I'm humble, maybe that's pride. So maybe the humble thing to do is not to raise my hand. <laughs> Humility is an interesting thing. It's, it's misunderstood and it's sorely lacking in our world and in our culture today. We live in a me-first culture. Uh, we're born that way. All of us are, are born uh, me-first. First words out of uh, our mouths often is the word mine. Uh, we're self-centered. It's all about us. And that's the culture in which we live. And it's been fueled, I think, that culture's been fueled by social media. So now there's all these platforms that people have. There's YouTube, and there's Twitter, and there's Facebook, and there's all these social media things that we can put our entire life out for everybody to see, fueled by how many likes we get. And so we share our life, and uh, usually the best of our lives with others to see, and we're living in a very much a me-centered culture. In fact, a relatively new phenomenon is the word Selfie. And uh, most of you know what a selfie is. I, I looked it up in the dictionary to get the official definition of a selfie. A selfie is an image that includes oneself, often with another person or a group, 
and is taken by oneself using a digital camera, especially for posts on social networks. If I was a little more savvy, I'd, we could take one this morning, couldn't we, if I brought my camera up and and uh, post it out there on social media. But that's the, that's the world in which we live. In 2013, the word selfie was named the word of the year by Oxford Dictionary. Research suggested its frequency in the English language had increased by 17,000% over the previous year. <laughs> so everybody's talking about self and they're posting selfies. And apart from the transforming work of Christ in our life, life remains all about us. But as we're going to see this morning, that Jesus paints a much different picture. Author Jerry Bridges in his book, The Blessing of Humility, in his introduction writes this, the character trait of humility is the second most frequently taught trait in the New Testament. Second only to love. There are at least 50 instances of love taught either by precept or example in the New Testament. And 40 instances of humility. These two traits are the foundation stones of Christian character. And so, uh, Jesus' invitation this morning, and we read it in our, our scripture reading in Matthew chapter 11, 28, he's like, I'm meek and humble, and he says, learn from me. And so that's our goal this morning. We want to learn, model, follow the humility of Jesus. And it is perhaps, um, no better place exemplified in the New Testament than John chapter 13. So let's look at the John chapter 13. We're going to look at the setting in John chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. John writes, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the fullest extent. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Well, there John kind of gives us the background, the setting of this, this very familiar story in the New Testament. It's Passover time. The most um, prominent Jewish festival, probably of the seven festivals that they were to observe, the Jewish Passover. A celebration of the independence of the, the Jewish nation. You remember the story? 400 years of Egyptian bondage uh, in Egypt. 400 years of slavery. And then finally, uh, God raises up Moses and the ten plagues. And the book of Exodus is all about the exodus, exiting out of Egypt. And so, uh, it's, it's really their independence day. The Passover will be very equivalent to what we celebrate on July 4th. And so here are uh, Jesus and his disciples. They're in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The wheels are already in motion for the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. John, John tells us the devil has already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Judas has already met with the religious leaders and negotiated a price on the betrayal of Jesus. Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16. Then uh, Judas went to the chief priests and asked, 
What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So it's already in Judas's mind. He's already talked to the religious leaders. He's already kind of cut a deal. For 30 pieces of silver, I'm going to betray Jesus. Luke in the parallel passage tells us that also something was happening while all this was going on. That a dispute broke out again amongst the 12 disciples about who was going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. Can you imagine that? At Jesus' most crucial moment, and after Jesus spending uh, lots of time teaching them that greatness in my kingdom means servanthood, they never really got it. And Jesus taught them that with his lips, and now he's going to demonstrate it with his life. He's going to demonstrate by some um, actions here in just a little bit. Soon Jesus would announce that his betrayal would be an inside job that he would be leaving this world and the disciples could not come, that Peter would deny him three times. The disciples' world was about to be turned upside down. And as the meal, the Passover meal was in progress, that leads us to the surprise. And it was a shocking surprise to everybody that was there. And you know this passage, but let's, let's, uh, let's read it. Uh, John chapter 13 verses 3 through 5. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around them. Now, there's some cultural things that are going on here, as you well know. Uh, Palestine, don't have paved roads, dusty dirt roads, um, wearing sandals, feet are going to get dirty. You also know the cultural way in which they ate meals, um, low table, uh, maybe a foot off the ground and kind of leaning and as they're eating, uh, feet maybe in proximity to other people. This, this was a cultural custom that when you came into a home, the, it was the honor of, of the guests to have some servants there and they would wash, wash your feet. Nobody had done that. And now Jesus does something that, that is striking and shocking. Um, David Jeremiah in his commentary writes, In Jewish culture, washing another person's feet was not the work of the typical household servant, but was reserved for the lowest type of slave. As guests arrived at a home, the slave would kneel down beside a basin of water, remove everyone's sandals, and wash their feet. Then the slave would dry their feet and replace their sandals. This is an incredible act of humility, of love, the creator of the universe, God in the flesh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, kneeling before his disciples, washing their feet. And in about 12 or 15 hours, he's going to be on the cross. This is, this is Thursday night. He's on the cross at 9 o'clock Friday 
morning. Soon to be betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, and deserted by the rest, except John shows up eventually at the cross. And yet Jesus humbly took on that position of a servant and washed the disciples' feet. Well, as the story goes, there's some uh, symbolism here. And uh, let's look at the symbolism in verses 6 through 11. Because as Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples one by one, and uh, they're observing about what's happening, and uh, we read about Peter. And uh, we're going to see that Peter's a little hesitant. Peter's uh, reluctant. Peter eventually is adamant that Jesus will not wash his feet. So let me read the passage and then we'll work our way through it. Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? The word there, you, is, is emphatic in the, in the Greek. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, again, emphasis, you will never wash my feet. Peter's reluctant. I don't know about you, but I can understand that reluctance. Now there was, there's some cultural things going on here, and we don't, we don't normally do foot washing, although we'll learn later that uh, some churches and denominations view, Foot washing is an ordinance, so they'll observe um, baptism, the Lord's table, and they will regularly have foot washing services. Very common on Holy Week, on uh, on a Thursday night, for some churches to have a foot washing service, and um, based on 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 this passage. But how would you feel this morning if I said, "Now next Sunday when you come, be prepared because we're going to have a foot washing service and." I'm going to wash your feet next Sunday. And some of you are thinking, I'm missing that Sunday. <laughs> like, no, no, I, no way. That was, that, I'm not, I'm not letting, no, that's not going to happen. Most of you would not show up, I bet. <laughs> Peter's reluctant here, and the reluctancy, this, well, it was a cultural thing. He did not want Jesus to wash his feet. And so we see um, Jesus answers Peter in verse 8, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Well, now Peter, the pendulum swings all the way over to the other side. First he says, no, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus says, well, if you don't, I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. So now Peter says, well, then you need to wash my whole body. If I can't have any part of you, if you don't wash my feet, then... Peter says, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Verse 10, Jesus uh, answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. So, Let's, there's some symbolism here, and we need to, we need to look at it. Here's the, here's the first part of the symbolism here. When Jesus says those that have had a bath only need to wash their feet, the bath symbolizes justification. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
He says, if you already know me as Savior, if your sins have been forgiven, then you don't need to be saved again. You don't need to take a bath every time. But then he says, the foot washing symbolizes sanctification. That's a continuous act. And so Jesus is not only humbly serving his disciples by modeling humility here, but Jesus is teaching a spiritual lesson here. And he says the washing of feet symbolizes sanctification, a repeated and continuous act. 1 John chapter 1. Let me read uh, some verses from uh, later on what the Apostle John wrote. Verse 7 of 1 John 1. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son purifies us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When I, I remember when I was growing up in the church and I learned that Jesus forgave us of all of our sins and then I read 1 John 1, 9 and I'm like, well, why do I have to keep confessing my sins if Jesus already forgave them all? And because He's talking about two different things, our position and our practice. Positionally, before Christ, we are justified. We are holy. He looks at us just as if we've never sinned. But practically in our lives, we're still sinning. Hopefully we're in a growth process of growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And so what do we do with those sins? We, we continue to confess our sins to restore what? Fellowship with God. Kind of like having an argument with somebody in your life or maybe with your spouse and there's a barrier there and what needs to happen? There needs to be some reconciliation and forgiveness. And so Jesus is, is teaching this, uh, through this, um, passage, through his act, some symbolism here. And notice he, uh, says in, in verse, uh, 10, he says, you are clean, though not every one of you, John says, for he knew who was going to betray him and that was why he said not everyone was clean. He's talking about Judas. Um, Judas, the one who was going to betray him. Not, not clean. Not, not a believer. Not a genuine believer. And so, um, there's, there's a symbolism here in the midst of Jesus uh, teaching and modeling humility. Well, the setting, uh, the surprise, the symbolism, uh, this passage um, concludes with the Savior's exhortation. The Savior's exhortation. Let's look at it in uh, verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. So here's this, here's this statement that Jesus makes. And as I mentioned, many church denominations um, practice foot washing on a, a regular basis, maybe on a monthly basis. And this is where they get this. Because Jesus said, oh, I washed your feet, you need to wash one another's feet. The question we have to ask is, is this descriptive or prescriptive? Is, is this, a, is this a, an imperative or is Jesus saying, I'm doing this as an example of what humility looks like? 
And I would say that it's the latter in my, my viewpoint. That Jesus perhaps is not literally saying we need to wash one another's feet, although I've seen that done many times. Been done in church services. I remember going to a, a promise uh, keeper's um, event years and years ago. There's fifty thousand men, and they're doing some foot washing on the on the platform. I've been to several weddings where uh, washing one another's feet is an act of humility. is is part of the wedding ceremony, the wedding service. But I think Jesus is really saying, and he mentions it here in verse fifteen. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Or the word can also be translated a pattern. Here's, here's a model. Here's a pattern. Jesus is talking about what humility looks like. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, and we won't take the time to read that passage, but you remember that uh, some people came to Jesus and they wanted to find out in um, what what the greatest. Actually, this is uh, the mother of James and John coming and asking um, Jesus, "Hey, can can my son uh, son sit on your right and left when you come into your kingdom? Can they have the prominent place? Uh, you know, your number one man and your number two man." And the rest of the disciples heard that James and John's mother had made that request, and the Bible says they were indignant. Probably because they wanted those positions. And so Jesus goes on to teach about greatness in my kingdom. And greatness in Jesus' kingdom is totally upside down of what our culture views as greatness. It's not about how many people serve you. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom is how many people you serve. And so he teaches uh, that lesson there in John chapter 20. Obviously a lesson that they didn't really uh, assimilate. But Jesus says... Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must also be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve many and give his life as a ransom. And so, greatness in Jesus' kingdom is defined by servanthood. And so Jesus concludes this uh, our section here, verse 16. And 17, very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now you know these things, you will be blessed. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So Jesus concludes this section and uh, the rest The rest of the chapter is... Uh, is him predicting his betrayal and Peter's denial and and Jesus trying to comfort his disciples that the person that they've been with for three years, the person that's been their, their rock and uh, the one that they followed now is leaving and uh, he, he teaches some truth um, to them in the next few chapters right before he goes to the cross. Well, this morning we want to spend just maybe 10 or 15 minutes at the most on some uh, application truths. So what are some things that we can learn from, from this story, from Jesus personifying humility in John chapter 13? And uh, let's look at three of them. Here's the first one. In order to become Christ-like, we must know what Christ was like. So Romans 8, 29, what's, what's, what's God's goal for our life? 
yes, to redeem us, to save us from our sins. But Romans 8.29 says that His goal is that we will be what? Conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus. That's His ultimate goal. Now, ultimately, that will happen, uh, be completed when we get to heaven and we see Him face to face. 1 John 3, verse 2 says, uh, We will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. But the rest of our Christian life is to be a process of growing, of becoming more like Jesus. And the challenge here is that if you don't know what Jesus is like, (laughs) you're not going to know how to be like Him. So Ephesians 5, uh, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writing to the uh, Ephesian believers, talking about forgiveness in Ephesians 4.32, then he says, follow God's example as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Uh, So Paul writes about forgiveness. Paul talks about loving others. Follow the way of Christ. And so why are we studying the Gospels? Why, Why is there value in that? It's because we begin to see a glimpse into what Jesus was like. And so the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church wrote, follow my example as I follow Christ. Paul says, I'm not going to do it perfectly, but, but I'm trying to be like Christ, so, so you need to follow my example and follow the pattern of the life of Christ. And so the first, first um, application truth is, as we study John 13, we discover who Jesus is and his character, and it helps us then to Model our lives after Him. Well, here's the second uh, application truth then. And it's this. We are most Christ-like when we are serving others. We are most Christ-like. So if our goal is to be like Christ, when are we most like Christ? Well, it's when we're serving other people. That was the whole purpose and mission of Jesus to to purchase our redemption, but He came to seek and to save the lost and He came to serve others. And we are most like Christ when we serve other people. And so, if we want to be like Jesus, then we need to have a servant heart. We need to have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2 talks about that mind, the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it talks about his, his life and his uh, servanthood and, and leaving heaven and coming down to be our Savior. So we're most Christ-like when we're serving others. Well, how can we do that? Well, I think it starts in the home. And the home's a great proving ground, a great place to begin to learn to serve. Starts in the home. I had a couple of counseling sessions yesterday with two couples that will be officiating at their wedding. We talked about biblical roles in the Bible and marriage. Talked about headship. One of the things I said is, you know what headship means in the Bible for the husband? You're the chief servant. (laughs) 
You, you, you get to love your spouse like Christ loved the church and He died for the church. And so this headship isn't this, this power grab. No, it means servanthood. You get to be the chief servant in your household. Servant leadership in a very popular um, popular topic in Christian circles over the last uh, 20 years or so. Uh, one of our inserts, uh, focus on the family inserts um, that we recently had uh, in, our, in our bulletins, an article by Gary Smalley entitled, An Easter Reminder, Honor Your Spouse. He writes, I tell couples to make it their goal to outserve their spouse. Love is a sacrifice, and if we love our spouse, it should motivate us to give them our very best. Imagine the health of marriages in our country if couples served each other. But the motivation for our service matters. I shouldn't serve my wife out of fear. I should serve her because I want to be like Christ. Jesus came to earth to serve, not to be served. And so the uh, servanthood starts starts in the home. Dr. Gary Chapman, who's written dozens and dozens of books on uh, on marriage, and I highly recommend reading anything that Gary Chapman has written. But uh, Dr. Gary Chapman says he he made this practical in his life, uh, but he simply began to ask his wife this simple question. How can I help you today? How can I make your life easier today? What a great question. Just flat out say, hey, what can I do today to help you, to serve you, to make your life easier? And so servanthood, it, uh, we're most like Christ when we're serving others and, and it starts in the home, but it, it can also be fleshed out in a, in a marketplace. Uh, to be a good uh, em- employee, to be willing to be a servant, to be willing to do tasks that maybe are below your pay grade, and 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 just to see what needs to be done and do it. And believe me, that will catch the eye of uh, of your employer. Serving in the marketplace, it moves to the church. Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church in California, writes this quote, Serving is the opposite of our natural inclination. Most of the time we're more interested in serve us than service. We say, I'm looking for a church that meets my needs and blesses me, not vice versa. But as we mature in Christ, the focus of our lives should increasingly shift to a life of ministry and service. The mature follower of Jesus stops asking the question, who's going to meet my needs? And starts asking the question, whose needs can I meet? And so, um, servanthood starts at the home. It can be fleshed out in the marketplace. It can be lived out and needs to be lived out in the church. In asking the question, how can I serve? That's really where my journey of service began in ministry. I was a, a seminary student a long, long time ago in Grand Rapids. 
Diane and I were attending a small church called East Leonard Baptist Church. Pastor at the time, his name was Jim Seifert. This is 40 plus years ago. And I was going to school in seminary and studying to be a pastor, but I wasn't serving in the church. That's a little bit of an oxymoron. And so about my second year in seminary, I thought, well, if I'm going to make this my life and ministry, I need to, I need to serve. And so here's what I did. I went, I went to the the pastor and said, hey, I'm willing to serve. And uh, are there any needs here where uh, maybe um, you could put me in ministry? And he uh, right away uh, got me involved in teaching a class, and that was the first time in my life I ever you know, stood in front of people in the church and tried to open up scriptures and and uh, teach them. Um, and uh, uh, there were some very patient people in that class. I will say that it's also the church where I preached my my first sermon, and I remember that sermon was I think it was Exodus chapter seventeen. I had all these notes. And um, I thought it was going to last about 35 or 40 minutes. And I looked up at the clock and it was like, gone. I was done in like 15 minutes. And I'm like, oh no. Um, you know, what, what do I do from here? So I, I kind of began to review a little bit. And uh, um, so and some of you are thinking, well, he hasn't learned that lesson. He needs to shorten it up. But we're most like Christ when we're serving others and it's in the home and it's in the marketplace and it's in the church and ultimately it's in the world, isn't it? Um, that, that we can impact, impact the world and serve other people and, you know, that's, that's what these are all about. That's why we need to have a, a focus, um, on, on the missions and, and God's called us what to to partner to somehow get the gospel what to the ends of the earth, and so we can serve in the home, in the church, in the marketplace, in the world. On Thursday, um, early in the week, I got a a, a text from our, our good friends. John and Cindy Van Team, and uh, we've known the Van Teams for maybe 35 years. Um, John had a dentist practice up in Stockbridge for a number of years, and uh, as I've shared our, my, our story about our connection with the Van Teams, people ask me, well, how did you first get connected to John and Cindy? And I said, well, he was a Christian who graciously gave... Um, pastors 40% off their dental bill. <laughs> and uh, at the time we had our three boys, all five of us are going to the dentist, and so we started driving to Stockbridge, wasn't, wasn't that far, about 15, 20-minute drive, got connected with the Van Teens. Um, John sold his practice about 15 years ago, um, and uh, John has got a heart for God and a heart for the gospel. Um, We've developed a friendship over the years. John was diagnosed with a, a, a very aggressive form of cancer in early Jan- early December. And right now he's in the Henry Ford Allegiance Hospice. And uh, John doesn't have a lot of time left. Cindy asked me if I would officiate at his funeral, and I said I would be honored to do that. I visited John this Thursday, and it was a difficult visit, and had a very hard time 
uh, his voice was down to a whisper, and so I, I, I wasn't getting a lot of what he was saying. But I tell you what, John lived a life of service to others. And I've been reading the Facebook posts, and um, and thankfully uh, Cindy is reading them to him. And, uh, and John lived his life for, for other people and in ministry and in hospitality. Um, the last um, five or six years of his life, uh, John got connected with an organization called Hope Force, and it's similar to an organization like Samaritan's Purse. And so wherever there's a, a, a catastrophe in the country, a hurricane or a tornado or flooding, uh, Hope Force would send people down to, to hands-on help people, put a tarp on a roof or whatever needed to be done. And John became the senior chaplain with Hope Force. So he would travel around the United States and he would, would pray for people that are, are devastated because they've lost their home. And he would share the gospel of Jesus with them. And many people came to become followers of Christ because God used John to become Christ to other people and serve. We're never more like Christ than when we're serving others. Lastly, thirdly, and then we're done. The key to God's blessing in our lives is obedience. The key to God's blessing in our lives is obedience. Jesus flat out applied his his lesson here in John thirteen seventeen. He says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you what? If you do them. So the blessing comes not just from hearing, but the blessing is found in doing. We can't live counter to God's word and God's will revealed in Scripture and expect God's blessing. A lot of people do that, don't they? Oh God, will you please bless me? <laughs> and they're living totally opposite of what Jesus and God's word says. And like, well, that's, you know, no blessing comes, true blessing comes from obedience. Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Joshua, the new leader of the nation of Israel, ready to lead Israel into the, um, the promised land. And God says to him, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Then you'll be blessed. James chapter 1, blessed is the man who doesn't just become a hearer of God's word, but the blessing is found in doing. And so... Um, the final truth here is that uh, the key to God's blessing in our lives is obedience. And in this context, it's what? Serving other people. And we're never more like Jesus than when we serve. And that brings great blessing in our life. So the challenge today is uh, to follow the example of Jesus, to humbly serve others in our home, in the marketplace, in the church, and around the world, and you will be blessed. Let's, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we started out by reading Matthew 11, where Jesus says, you need to learn from me, for I'm meek and humble in spirit. And Lord, we've uh, 
looked at John 13, something that happened 2,000 years ago where you modeled humility and servanthood. And in just a few hours after that, you were on the cross shedding your blood for our sins. Lord, I pray today that um, you would speak to our hearts about uh, being a servant. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, I pray that in turn we would look to uh, serve you. Lord, help us to serve in the home. And Lord, help us to serve in our communities and in our our um, professions in the marketplace. And Lord, help us to serve in the church. And Lord, help us ultimately to look for opportunities to serve you in this uh, world that is very, very needy. Lord, help us to have that mindset. And when we do, Lord, we thank you for the the blessing that comes, from the blessing that comes from serving and doing. And Lord, we will give you the praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.